Hi, y'all. So I am here with uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. He is prolific, one of the smartest men I know, so well-read. And I'm just excited to, to have a chat with him about a couple of these studies that have been making their way around the internet in kind of a, a very interesting manner. Almost the, the backlash that has come from these two relatively small HRV studies is, has been quite incredible. And so to give you guys some context, we had one study out of Brazil, which was kind of an eight-week study in, in newbies. Uh, they hadn't, the, one of the requirements for the study was they couldn't have lifted in the last six months, which is crazy to me. <laughs> like, you, could, like you, you better not have lifted in the last six months. <laughs> and then we had this other trial out of Germany that was uh, more of like an acute overload trial, uh, both looking at the utility of HRV and, 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 Mike did his dissertation on HRV. He, he knows this stuff. And so I wanted to bring him on. And, and do you want to talk about kind of the maybe why there was this backlash for these studies and then and kind of what you saw from them? Yeah, it's weird because like, um, you know, I've been doing HRV stuff for quite a while. Did it in research, was looking at it years before. We get into a mega wave and stuff like that too. But it's kind of one of those things where I was utterly convinced because when I started doing research, you had to go to a lab unless you had a $30,000 Omega wave system or very expensive system at the time. It was just impractical to get any measurements. So once they had handheld measurements on an iPhone, this is probably even six years ago now, I was like, oh my God, the whole, everyone's going to be measuring HRV. It's going to be crazy. Yeah, it's just crickets. Nothing really happened. You know, fast forward many years. Now, in my opinion, a lot of people still aren't measuring HRV per se, but everybody and their brother seems to have an opinion on it. And the main criticism of, you know, kind of the studies was, oh, well, the groups that did the HRV guided training, they didn't see a better adaptation, i.e. they didn't get stronger, they didn't add more muscle or hypertrophy. And I'm like, well, yeah, why, <laughs> why would you expect there to be a difference in adaptation? Unless you just pick the wrong period to test them and one group just had, you know, crushing levels of high fatigue. But again, that's, that's an artifact of when you picked your testing point. Um, but in the one study, it was interesting that they, they did not get to a different endpoint. But the one group that used HRV got there, I believe, in 5.1 weeks and the other group got there in seven weeks. So the HRV guided group, if you just read the abstract, it'll be like, yeah, nothing happened. How boring. But when you read the full study, I'm scratching my head going, okay, yeah, these are obviously not highly trained individuals. All the other standard caveats apply, but you had almost two weeks in the real world then to train again, right? And I know they didn't do that in the study because that wasn't the end point of the study per se, but I'm like, in the real world, you would have had an extra two weeks. So it's like, if I could set up your mesocycle and say, all right, you know, we're going to do what would normally be seven weeks and we can compress it into almost five weeks and we can get you to that same endpoint faster. Well, that's, that's cool. Now, I don't know if you can do that in advanced athletes per se. Um, but to me, I was like, that's, that's pretty fascinating. Um, but everyone kind of took the opposite view of, Oh, but they didn't get a better result from it. Therefore HRV is crap. Don't measure it. It's worthless. <laughs> Yeah, to me, it was just, it, it was an interesting study design in that you had to complete these 20 workouts and then they were going to use HRV as like the individualized protocol versus the fixed. It was right. a super interesting study design. I would have loved to see it in more trained individuals. Totally. I think 
in their study population, like training volume isn't going to be a big determiner of results anyways. Like you're already training three times a week. Like you going, you going from three to five at that point in your training career probably isn't going to make a measurable difference inside of eight weeks anyways. So they were really, they were really set up for, for, they weren't really set up to find anything. Um, in my I was opinion, surprised they actually saw any difference, to be honest. I would have yeah. thought with that population, you'd be like, nothing's going to happen. The fact that they actually got there sooner, I was kind of surprised by that. That was, that was surprising to me, too, because it, it wasn't like a super easy training protocol. Like they were, no, it was pretty good. Yeah, they were training yeah. them. It, the Brazilian protocol, seemed, the studies out of Brazil, seemed, they seem to like to beat people up, which I, which I appreciate. Yeah, um, they do. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely like to train. And so the maybe just getting into it, the the real so if people don't know, I I was with Aaron Davis for a while. We used a mega wave. Like I've I've looked, I've seen HRV data. I've seen the back end of it. I've HRV'd myself for years. Uh, I I generally have. I, I'm going to take a devil's advocate kind of point of view, and yeah. that if you have all the fundamentals maximized. I think it probably just, if you're trying to get maximum results, I think you're going to play with overtraining anyways. And that's where I kind of think that this technology could be useful for some people, some people who can't back off. Um, yeah. and, and there's been some research even in the endurance field where this is, you, you know, we don't have good metrics for quantifying or even finding functional overreaching versus non-functional overreaching and overtraining. No. And like the best thing we have is a palm score, like yeah, high, pretty good. your motivation to train. And so I think if we can get more metrics in these people who don't have the fundamentals online, or maybe they do, and they just want to bury themselves with volume. Uh, maybe that's a place where this could be useful. Do you want to, you want to talk about that? Yeah. So I've, I've been in the two categories and I probably stole this from you is you have more advanced level people where their training stress is bigger than their lifestyle stress. And then you've got the inverse, right? You got people who are just new to training their lifestyle is an utter shit show and their training is eh, not all that impressive because their stress is so high. So when I started doing HRV, my hypothesis was, okay, you know, similar to you, if you're really pushing volume, your lifestyle's under control, your recovery is good, HRV may be a way to kind of see if you get close to kind of crossing over that edge. And what I did is I just started measuring it in everyone just to get more data. And I didn't think in that other group where their lifestyle stress was a lot higher, it would be all that useful. And what I found was it, in my opinion, it was useful for both, but for different reasons. If your lifestyle is under control and your training stress is high, uh, those people, I like initially on the first program, I just do a very simple volume ramp. So week one, you're probably only doing one or two sets. Why? Because I'm doing different movements. I want to get rid of a lot of fatigue that you buried yourself with before. If I tell you not to train, you're going to be like, I'm not paying this idiot to tell me not to train. Okay, go to the gym, do one or two sets. And then each week I add another set to everything. So by week six or seven, you may be doing six or seven sets of all the exercises. So it's just straight old school linear volume increase. And what I'm looking for is two things, uh, changes in HRV possibly, and then also uh, basically like a POM score, like willingness to train. Like how trash do you actually feel? 
and I don't change anything with HRV, I don't make any other changes, at the end of that, let's say they get, make it to six sets and they're like, oh my God, this is horrible. My performance is tanking. I feel like death and then HRV is starting to drop. Then I go back and look to see what's actually correlated, right? So I'm using HRV as kind of a surrogate, but not to initially auto-regulate their training because I have zero idea how much stress that person can take. And I'm just going to keep pushing more and more training stress on them. The other case where if their lifestyle stress is a lot higher, I actually use HRV with context to demonstrate to them that their lifestyle is a disaster zone, right? Because sleep is a perfect one, right? Everyone's talking about sleep now and it's good, right? Is there a physiologic reason to talk about sleep? Absolutely. Um, but, and you even mentioned this too, is that at the end of the day, to get someone to sleep two hours more is almost a value change in their life. They have to upend a whole bunch of other stuff to tell them that, okay, that two hours you spend watching Netflix in the evening with your spouse, no, nah, screw that, just go to bed. They're like, screw you, I'm not listening to you, I don't like any of this stuff. And I used to talk ad nauseum about sleep, but it never changed anything. So when I had HRV, they have a little slider switch that marks their sleep, nutrition, recovery, just different contextual indicators. And so what I'll do is I'll just take a simple graph of like the last three weeks, their HRV will be changing, right? So let's say it's getting worse and their sleep is getting worse. And I just send them the graph and go, hey, what do you think is going on? Like that's the only thing I say to them in the email. And it's crazy how many people look at it and they go, oh my God, you mean like my sleep is impacting my training? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, I kind of knew that, but yet I did it, right? That's, it's kind of harder to run from the actual data. And then they'll usually email back and be like, oh, well, what can I do to change it? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so they're a little more willingness to change. So I think you can be used in both categories. The caveat is that you still need some type of context indicator. So HRV, resting heart rate in a vacuum all by itself, I don't find is all that useful. I want to know what's your training, what's your nutrition, and even just a simple one to 10 scale self-report data first thing in the morning, that's fine, right? So if I see a big change in HRV, the first thing I look at is a context, right? Did your energy drop? Did your sleep drop? Do your willingness to train? What's going on uh, with those types of things? Um, so I think it can be useful in both cases. It just depends upon uh, how you're using it and what is, like all things, what is the context of what you're talking about? Have you found that sometimes it enables behavior in the general population? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you, it's like anything else, right? Everyone wants to be like, oh, the data is bad. It's like, no, data is just data, right? And you're going to always have people, like some people, I'll show them an HRV score and they're like, oh, okay, that's cool, man. I'm going to take a rest day. All right. Yeah, you probably earned it. You're probably good. Other people are like, Screw you, I'm drinking four cups of coffee and I'm gonna go to the gym and show you that this piece of shit is wrong. <laughs> it's just, it could be the exact same data and you've got two people with absolutely completely divergent behaviors. And it seems like everyone online will assume that the behavior they take is a behavior that everybody's gonna take, right? So one of the questions I get and I still get is, oh man, I don't use HRV and even trained athletes because what if they have this huge meet coming up and they show red, their HRV tanks the day before the meet. Oh my God, they're mentally going to be screwed and they're going to perform horrible. 
I'm like, okay, maybe. But to me, if, if that happens, your job as a coach, you did not adequately prepare them for anything, right? So if I have an athlete who I think may kind of crumble on a low HRV, I'll look at their HRV average, make sure that it's good. I'll look for a day where their acute HRV will drop or become red or quote unquote bad. And I might tell them, okay, today you're supposed to do four sets. I want you to go to the gym. I want you to work up to, you know, one rep max. It depends on the athlete or maybe a three to five rep max, something relatively heavy. And your goal is if you can and you feel good, I want you to hit a PR. And they kind of look at me and they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, okay. Most of the time they hit a PR. And then afterwards I'm like, okay. So they're like, why do we do that? I'm like, to show you that one, an acute reading does not always determine your performance. And we also cut the volume. You may have a rest day, you know, for one or two days after that, but it's more, I want to mentally prepare you that if it shows up red the day of a competition or the day before, we can be like, hey, remember like eight weeks ago in your prep, like you had a red HRV, what did you do? Oh, I went to the gym and got a PR. Cool, you'll be fine, don't worry about it. Why? Because it's a very short acute stressor which I'm not worried about per se. Now you have to be a little bit careful with that. I mean, if it's really horrible and the rest of your life a disaster zone, you probably don't wanna do that. Because if you do it, you wanna be really, really assured that they're gonna do well. So what are you doing? You're rewiring that response a little bit. Because the reality is, especially like a power lifter, I want them to be like amber or a little bit red. I want them to be a little bit on the sympathetic side the day before or the day of that meet. Because if they're extremely parasympathetic, which you know I've screwed up and peaked people incorrectly before, uh, especially early on, it did not go well. Like they're like, dude, I've had 800 milligrams of caffeine. I want to take a nap in the corner. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's not a good sign, right? And their HRV was like sky high out of normal. What happened? They're incredibly parasympathetic for whatever reason, right? We probably screwed up the fatigue on that. Um, but if they're a little red or a little bit amper, they actually are a little bit more sympathetic, which acutely for a gross motor skill, especially in more advanced lifters, especially in powerlifting, that's actually a good thing, right? You actually want that because on the, after that, shit, they could take the whole next week off if they wanted to, doesn't matter, right? You could program as much rest as you need to recover afterwards. What matters is the acute performance because that was their goal and that's what they're being graded on. Mm-hmm. So you're using it essentially in the general population to allow people to perhaps trip, trip on the truth. Um, and then you're using it in advanced trainees to, to find that sort of max adaptable volume. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'll do initially, like I said, I'll just keep programming volume till they report they hate their life and their HRV tends to drop. Now that would be a sheer case of just complete training uh, volume. Uh, The other thing I'll do in advanced lifters is I'll look at the response to like very heavy um, three to five rep maxes and then volume work. So I'll separate kind of old school strength work and old school kind of volume work. Um, So I had a a natural bodybuilder guy I worked with probably like three years ago now. Uh, He came to me. I knew him. He's a super nice guy. And he was just bitching all the time online about his shoulder. And he had seen seven different physical therapists and everything else. And so I said, hey, if you want to stop complaining, we can do some stuff for your shoulder. And I was kind of like half kidding. And he's like, oh, okay. So did some stuff with that. 
And what I found was that he was doing more of a kind of a DUP type uh, program, which was a little bit more geared for powerlifting, but it had a high amount of volume with it. And he had made, you know, pretty good progress on it, pretty strong dude, but he kept getting injured over and over. And he kept digging this big hole he could never seem to get out of. So we said, okay, let's take one or two weeks, just go real light, real easy, get some recovery, do some light mobility, did that. And I said, okay, Monday, I want you to go to the gym and I want you to work up to a three rep max on a trap bar deadlift and a bench press and just do as much volume as you can there. Ideally, you know, three, four, five sets. So pretty high volume ish. And then take the next two days off and I want to see what happens to your HRV. He's like, okay. So we do that. HRV drops like by about 10 points and doesn't recover until after 48 hours. It's actually in his case, almost 72 hours later. So once he recovered, I said, okay, go to the gym, take those same lifts again and just do, you know, 10 to 15 rep, you know, sets, right? So super high volume, same movements. And he hit about like 35,000 pounds of volume. Next day his HRV didn't move at all. Next day after that, HRV still didn't move at all. So for him, for God knows whatever reason, like volume, it was very, very hard for him to overreach on volume. So we programmed him 30 to 40,000 pounds of volume a day for five to six days a week as a natural lifter. Now I'd say that's a lot higher than most people I've seen, but you know, for he could run that for six to seven weeks and his HRV would be pretty darn good. The second we started throwing in a higher, I'm sorry, a lower rep day, boom, he would just tank. Um, and I had the inverse with another guy who qualified for raw nationals. He was doing low rep stuff five to six days a week, you know, had a job, just got married. Uh, when he got married, he had a kid that came with it, busy job, moved his house, was sleeping six to seven hours a night. And his HRV was pretty darn good. And I'd say that again, is an exception with that amount of stress. Um, he did well and, you know, qualified for, for raw nationals doing almost the inverse. So even if someone was a power lifter, most people I find can't handle that amount of low rep training, especially on that lifestyle. But again, in his case, he was fine. So it, I like HRV because it gives me a way of trying to determine what is the response, right? So very simply, we're putting in a stimulus into the black box and we're looking at what the response is. Now we can look at changes in you know, hypertrophy, different things like that. We can look at strength changes. But those kind of take a while to realize, especially looking at body comp. As you know, it's like, who knows, a couple of months before you can even try to get an accurate measurement with changes, even with the DEXA. Maybe. But with HRV, I get an idea of at least the stress on the autonomic nervous system, which isn't everything. But I get some idea of I poke the box and what happens to the response. And judging by that, I can then titrate and play around with variables a little bit and then see is that moving us in the right direction right? Are we doing more volume per week by doing this versus not doing it? Can we stretch out your run for maybe having to change every four weeks and run a taper? Can we go maybe just six weeks, right? So over the course of a year, we're again, we're getting in more volume of high quality work. Understood. So a lot, that seems like a very educated and, you know, thought out way to do this is to have collect other metrics as well as this metric and kind of look at oh, sure. kind, of, kind of look at the what's happening globally use you know tried and true snc principles test them and then make maybe make changes maybe don't make changes right yeah 
there's where Dr. Tommy Wood and I were talking the other day about essentially one of the big things I want to do is, and, and you're involved in this study as well, is look at you know people's recoverability because that's one uh, thing. One thing we don't have a lot of research on is highly trained athletes' ability to recover. Yes. It looks to be very dependent on different muscle groups, single joint versus multi-joint exercises. I would guess that it's even rep range specific. Uh, I would agree. And maybe rep range specific for this for different people, right? Yes. Um, and, and so there's there's so much we don't know. And I think like a lot of times if you're looking at these total volume studies that people like to yell and, and yell about, like you probably have so many people that like the individual data is probably so all over the board and it's hard to really know and so one of my things is like hey if we if we first differentiate based on the on the subjects say you can recover from a, you know three sets of 10 on eight different exercises or whatever it is three sets of 10 two volitional failure or maybe even pure failure and and you can recover from that in 24 hours my guess is is that you're going to be a hyper responder to any kind of high volume protocol you put yeah. in. whereas if you're someone who goes out to 96 hours you're gonna get lit yeah <laughs> and, and and you do you think that hrv would would pick something up like that even acutely or would it take more of this chronic approach that that you're doing with with individually with your athletes yeah my guess is you would probably see something acutely that's a guess. Now, would it tell you everything? No, it's not going to tell you everything. But I think it would, it would tell you at least autonomic nervous system stress. And some people, you know, got, who for whatever reason, their HRV can be dog crap for days and that doesn't seem to affect their performance all that much. So it's not a, it's not a direct linear relationship. Right? So a couple of years ago, I did an experiment of, I was like, well, maybe HRV doesn't uh, dictate training performance. Just because I see a drop in HRV, maybe I should keep training. Hmm, maybe I should do this. What happens? So I was an idiot and I'm like, okay, can I deadlift every day? Okay, let me try to do this. So I started deadlifting every day. Some was reps, some was lower stuff, whatever. And HRV keeps going down and down and down. After about three weeks, my joints hurt so freaking bad. I'm like, oh, this is a really dumb idea. So instead of stopping the experiment, I'm like, oh, what if I tried different versions of a deadlift, but still pick something up off the floor six days a week? Okay. Now I start rotating exercise to get rid of the joint pain. I did that for seven weeks. Now HRV, if I remember correctly, dropped almost 20 points <laughs> from when I started to the end of the experiment. And the weird part was I kept getting stronger. The downside was I ended up like pulling the plug because I was sleeping 10 and a half to 11 hours a night. I had like three cups of coffee to make it through the day. I felt like I got hit by a freaking train. I just felt like shit. But if I could get to the gym and I could get through my warm up sets, which took longer and longer, I, I, kept, I kept doing okay. Uh, but eventually I just pulled the plug on it because I felt like I was going to get really sick and just like... I didn't have enough room in my lifestyle to keep doing that. Um, so when you start throwing in fatigue into the mix, it gets really messy, right? Because we, so I think of it as like, if this is a, how much fatigue someone can hold, we're just guessing at how much that container, how much fluid we can put in that container, right? We know that people with a very small work capacity probably have a very small container, can't really take a lot of fatigue. That it, 
any amount of fatigue will just crush them. Other more elite athletes, especially the good aerobic base, a lot of, you know, experienced strength training, they could probably go into the hole pretty deep and still do okay for a period of time. Then you're left with the question of, okay, how far do we push them? How far does the quality of work start dropping so that we're not training the thing that we're after anymore? Especially if it's speed, especially if it's power, things of that nature. Hypertrophy gets a little bit messy. Um, so I always think of, okay, can I have some good marker of fatigue, whatever that is, and can I look to see performance is slowly going up over time? Maybe if I push volume of you know week five or six, I'll look for a little bit of a drop off and then I'll run a taper and then I'll just repeat again, right? So I'm kind of a weirdo where I'll track, like I've got metrics going back to 2011 on pretty much all my key indicators. So like, for example, when I went back to a lift I hadn't done for quite a while, I would look and see, okay, if I hit an eight rep range on this, I should transfer to a one RM. Now, the reason I know that is because I've got historical data on it. That may not be true for everybody else. So I think if we have data to look to see what are those quality metrics that actually transfer, and I agree that everyone probably has a different level of fatigue that they can handle and still perform, right? I mean, you've trained athletes. There's some people you could, you know, come into the gym, you could beat them with a stick and tell them to run through a wall. Their lifestyle is not that great. They leave, they come back the next day. They're like, all right, coach, what do I do today? Like we just beat the crap out of you yesterday and the performance is pretty good, right? And other people, it's like, oh man, like two days later, they're still kind of dragging. I don't know if that gets into peripheral fatigue and central fatigue and, you know, all that kind of stuff too. But uh, last point on that too, I'm sure you've seen the data from like Stu Phillips and those guys looking at uh, hyper responders. So Stu presented some of his data at uh, 2005 ACSM. He shows a graph of a hypertrophy training study they did. And you see like the big mess of data is right in the middle. You see one poor bastard at the bottom who actually got worse. <laughs> which is like, oh man, you did 12 weeks of training, bro, and you got worse, that sucks. And then there's two people, like at least two standard deviations above the top. And I asked him, I said, hey, I said, what's with the two people up there? And he goes, oh yeah, we call them the beef brothers. <laughs> They're like these two huge brothers who are farmers. And he's like, yeah, we just beat the crap out of them. He's like, they would go home, work all day in the field, like eat a huge meal and go to bed and come back to the lab the next day. And they did the same volume. They did the same program as everyone else. And their gains were like substantially better. And that's what led them to look at. Is it, you know, acute testosterone release? Is there some hormonal release, which later they showed, no, it wasn't. And you know, they get into, is it myonuclear domain? Is it something else? But I mean, we all know some people who don't have the greatest lifestyle and you could just beat the crap out of them. They just come back the next day like, hey, I'm ready to go. I don't know why that is. I'd love to know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know either. The Part of me wants to think like it's that upside of stress mindset too. Like the, yes. the, the idea that that nothing can kill you and everything's going to make you better. Um, which leads into the, do you, so what I, my biggest qualm with HRV data is the nocebo placebo effect. And, and sure. I, if I could black people out to the data, like I, if I could just collect it and not have yeah, yeah. them see the numbers, I would be so much more apt to use it. Um, but the, how do you deal with 
because HRV data is complex. You have RMSSD, you have low frequency, high frequency, yep. you have all it's very complex data. Same with same with sleep data, like now with the aura ring. So you yep. have you have people who are not well versed in seeing a lot of data trying to make a simple story out of yep. that complex picture. So what are you seeing from that or what are your recommendations in that scenario? Yeah, so there's certain apps I won't name their names that I won't use because they're designed with good intentions, but they started throwing everything under the sun into the app and it's a, just a disaster zone. It's like, oh, here's RMSSD, here's time domain. Oh, here's frequency domain. Oh, let's put CV in there. And is there some data to back some of those things up? Yeah. Do 99.9% .9 of people need to see that? Absolutely not. Um, so I like, I use primarily the iFleet system. It just does a time domain, RMSSD, takes 55 seconds once you're at a stable uh, resting heart rate, usually seated. And they have little indicators to say, okay, what's the context we talk about? That's it. There's nothing else in there. Resting heart rate, that's all you get. And the reality is that's all I really want. I don't think frequency domain is all that useful. Uh, James Heathers is a great paper called Everything Hurts, H-E-R-T-Z, for people who want to look into that. Yeah, there's a time and place to do it, although I think it's been way oversold in terms of trying to determine parasympathetic versus sympathetic, things of that nature. Um, you just do RMSSD, you can do it in 55 seconds. That's been shown to be accurate. And then I tell people the, what I call the HRV golden rule is, hey, HRV is only telling you the status of your autonomic nervous system. That's it, nothing else. And it's only telling you at that snapshot period of time. Because they're like, oh, but dude, I went and I meditated and I had some water and I thought of wonderful thoughts outside and I did my HRV and it went up 17 points. I'm like, great. That shows you that that activity is more parasympathetic. That's all it tells you. Right? They're like, oh, it'd be great the rest of the day. Probably not. <laughs> is that activity helpful? Yes. Is it going to dramatically move the needle as an acute one-off? Probably not. Is it good as a lifestyle thing to change? Yeah, of course. Um, but people want to kind of overextend from that. And then the other part too is that some people just want to see better data. So I had a, a lady, we're looking at her HRV for about like six months all of a sudden like it goes up like dramatically and I'm looking at it and the next day. So for like five days in a row, it's like way better than it's ever been. And I'm like, wait a minute, your volume's higher. Like I said, what are you doing? I said, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, Oh, I'm not doing anything different. I mean, you have to be doing something different. What do you do in the morning? Walk me through how you do the measurement again. Oh, well, you know, I did it seated before and I found if I did it lying down, I got better numbers. And I'm like, okay, so let me guess, 35 days ago, you did it lying down, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, we can't compare a seated measurement to a laying down measurement. The number is better, but it's not telling us the data that we want. So I think, yeah, you have to be careful with how people interpret it, what overextensions they take. In my opinion, the only time it's really valid right now is first thing in the morning. And the reason you're doing that is because sleep is probably the most reproducible, stable, eight-hour epoch of time you're going to get, right? As soon as you, like James Heathers has shown this, if I drink a crap load of water and I measure my HRV, within minutes, it'll be different. Why? Well, think of what happens to all that water coming in. 
it's getting put into the blood. Your body has to regulate that fluid pressure. So you're going to see changes in chemoreceptors and a whole bunch of other cardiac dynamic things to deal with an onslaught of a bunch of fluid coming in. So just get up in the morning, use the bathroom, do the measurement. Whatever you get is whatever you get. If your HRV dropped, you're not a bad person now. Your life's not going to end. Consequently, if it goes up 10 points, eh, that's probably not a day to go bonkers either, right? Because now you've probably overshot a little bit too much the other direction. Um, in terms of blocking out the data, from research standpoint, I think it would be really cool because you're preventing the subject from having those mental changes by looking at the data. And I've, I've talked to Simon at iFleet about this quite a bit. The downside is I would need highly motivated people in order to keep taking the data. Because the fastest way to ensure your compliance is dog shit is to do nothing with the data. Like I have a pretty highly motivated clients and to get them to collect data for just three weeks without doing anything with it, even though I know they're probably doing stuff with it and they don't tell me, that's kind of pushing it. You know, if I continue that for another three weeks, they're just gonna stop doing it. Why? Because they're like, I don't know, this idiot coach isn't doing anything with this data. Why am I wasting my time collecting it? So in theory, I think, yeah, it would be cool. I think if you get highly motivated people in a research setting and you've got something that'll flag it on there that says, okay, it's greater than a 10 point change, please redo your measurement, even though it doesn't tell them that, just tells them to redo it. Uh, from a collection standpoint, I think it would be cool. From a coaching standpoint, unless you've got just highly motivated people who will just do whatever you say, bar none, I think in that population it might be useful, but I think compliance is, or it gets a little, a little bit sketchy too. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I personally, like I did it for, from an anecdote standpoint, I did it for a long time and I, it just constantly came back green. Like I was just like, I just didn't. So I, <laughs> I was like, dude, I can't mess myself up. Like it, it was, it was, and, and one of my buddies, Ryan, you know, Ryan, uh, yeah. He did the same thing. Like the first time, like he was, I, both of us, like I, I started training like six or seven days a week. And then it finally, <laughs> it finally like dropped. I was like, okay. So, and, and I would have guessed that, that I'm one of those pe people that can take a ton of volume. I tend to be that person. And, and in my youth, I was, I thought everyone could take that amount of volume. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, oh yeah, you can do that. And, and like, and so now, now I realize like, okay, that, that might partly be me, but it might also be that I've been training for so long and I've accumulated a ton of volume. That's not, that's yeah. not good or bad. That just is how it is. And so that's kind of, if, if your goals are simple, like hypertrophy to me is a, I, I think if you're after like, if you're after one RM strength, that, that to me is a more complicated goal than hypertrophy. Yes. Way more complicated. You need, you have to peak, you have a lot of competing demands, right? Um, and then hypertrophy stupid it's it's how much <laughs> it's, it's how much volume can you take over time it's literally effort over time which is why i love it um but what i see a lot of people doing right now is they have they have so many competing demands they're like oh yeah i want to i want like i had a guy who came to me he's like I want to, you know, I want a deadlift max 550 pounds. I want to have, you know, a six hit. I want to have a six pack. I want to be able to run, you know, five mile, five minute mile, whatever the hell. Like he had so many different, <laughs> and he all he wanted them all now. Yeah, uh, tomorrow. 
Yeah, it, 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 but it, it didn't even come out like it, it. What boggled my mind was it didn't even seem for him. It, he was already pretty fit, right? So, and he'd been successful getting as fit as he was. So he'd gotten past this newbie point, and like none of this stuff felt like it was going to be hard. Like he, he, he was like, "This is doable," right? I'm like, "Dude, fuck!" He's like, "No, no, <laughs> not like, no, you can't." Maybe like if you're Matt Frazier, you can you could do yeah. all these things at once, right? Like maybe that, and, and that's kind of what CrossFit has told, taught us is like, oh, people are capable of, you know, managing a lot of interference effect. Yeah. But even Frazier took a year off to bring up his aerobic capacity and sat out of the games one year to work with Henshaw just to work only on aerobic capacity. And he came back and he dominated. But even that elite level of an athlete took well over a year off to work on a weakness to get it up to where it needed to be. So. Yeah, yeah. It, and that's it, a freak athlete. <laughs> and and CrossFit is a is a perfect example. Like they're not really that strong. Like I'm not trying to be a dick, but like if yeah, you yeah. think if you think about like okay, what did the what did the biggest guy in the CrossFit Games pull a couple of years? Like it was like five fifty or something on a deadlift. That's not if he goes to a you know like a powerlifting meet, that's not high. Um, yeah, yeah. Granted, he did it after he rode a marathon, so maybe yeah. he, like <laughs> so maybe yeah. it was a, a lot higher. So, but it's, it's, it's really interesting to me that in, in this world where that's where I think HRV is, it, it could be more useful is like where you have this mixed modal where you're trying to manage all of these qualities. Um, and, and then you really want to be careful because I think it's really, really hard to overtrain someone when you're just training for hypertrophy. I think that's, yeah. I think that's pretty hard to do. Like you're going to have to go if you're a newbie, maybe not, but if you're pretty trained, I think you're going to have to go in like the 20 plus set range for a while um, yeah. to, to overtrain yourself. Now, if you're doing that plus all a bunch of other stuff, it's going to be a lot easier. Um, oh, yeah. so, so where do you, I guess that's not really a question, but, <laughs> but I think we both are in agreement that if your goal is just to get bigger and you don't care about anything else, you're managing few you're managing fewer variables so i guess the more variables you're trying to ma manage and the more things you're trying to increase the more you probably need to pay attention to things your recovery status which is yeah yeah and i think if you know i i give a, a keynote to um a bunch like 200 groups uh, 200 people for bodybuilding uh the physique seminar uh, summit uh, two three years ago on HRV and I had done it with some physique athletes and you know you have all these fantasies of yourself giving a talk and oh it's gonna go so well and everyone's gonna love it and they're gonna send me all this cool data and I'm gonna learn a bunch of shit and everybody loved it and no one did anything <laughs> because in their head they're like well it's just you know uh, it's just hypertrophy training and I'm like yeah I get that like off season yeah yeah probably don't worry much about it however if you have someone who's trying to get ready to step on stage at a banana hammock at like, you know, two, three, four, 5% body fat, whatever, your amount of stress that you are putting on that individual is going to escalate very fast, right? Because now you start doing it in a caloric deficit. And what I've seen is two things is that some people, when you start pulling calories back, their stress exponentially seems to go up higher. Other people, it just, it goes up, but not as much. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's a training status, a mental thing, who knows? Um, but my whole argument was, if you see someone's stress skyrocket and they're 16 weeks out, 
you're screwed. You, you need to have a discussion now of what you're going to do. Because if you stay on that, where you're going, nothing good's going to become of that. They're either going to get injured, they're not going to be ready, whatever. Um, if everything's fine, then you're cool. And the other part where it was useful too was after the fact, especially with female competitors. Because they think the second that they stepped off stage, boom, all my stress goes away. I did my show. Yay, wash my hands. I'm done with it. Uh, no. Like you accumulated a massive amount of stress to get there. And I've seen where their HRV goes up or drops really low and it'll just stay there. And it'll take, you know, 12, 16 weeks for them to get back to normal again. Right. Just like, you know, Eric Helms has talked a lot about that too with hormonal levels, everything else. So I think HRV, started, they weren't back for like, they weren't back. Females weren't back from the competition for four months. They yeah. were still jacked. Yeah. It's still screwed. But what I found was without hard data, most of the female competitors are like, well, you know, I feel a little bit better now. I want to do another show. It's like, no, we won't, we won't even talk about that until you show me that you can normalize your HRV data. Do you can show me that at least the stress on your autonomic nervous system is back to semi-reasonable levels. Okay, then we can have a little bit of a, a discussion about it. So I agree. I think there are some side things in hypertrophy that I think it might be useful. Uh, speed and power, probably more useful just because of, um, you know, peaking, your tapers, things of that. So when I run a taper, I'll do it by HRV. So the same guy who qualified for raw nationals. I said, well, you know, let's, let's just do your, your peak for your next meet by HRV. He's kind of looking at me, uh, and I'm like, well, well, we'll just try it and see what happens. You know, he's like, okay. And everything, I'd worked with him for six months at that point. Everything had gone really well. And I said, okay, your normal taper is how long? He's like seven days. And he'd, you know, done well with that. I said, all right, for this one, we're going to run your training longer. So you're going to have more fatigue and your taper is going to be two weeks. He's like, two weeks? He's like, dude, that's way too long. And I'm like, I don't know, it might be. But if it's seven days and you're not recovered and you, you are showing up to the meet on that Saturday morning, I haven't found anything that can exponentially speed recovery, you know, illegal drugs aside, that kind of stuff. Um, however, if we plan for two weeks and you're ready 10 days in, I can easily have you go to the gym and do a couple openers and you're probably going to be fine. Right? I can add a little bit more stress back to you to bridge you to that meet, and you're going to be okay. Like We can manage that. That's pretty easy. And that's kind of what happened. You know, He was ready probably that Wednesday or Thursday. I said, okay, just go to the gym, hit your openers, walk out, and leave. Don't do anything else beyond that. Just, just do that. Take the next two days off. And we saw HRV, you know, massive amount of fatigue. It's impaired. Comes back up. Probably peaked a little bit early and then dropped right before the meet. And, you know, it worked out well and he qualified for Raw Nationals. It doesn't always work that well. But, again, it gives you some data to at least look at and go, hey, you know, where are we in this process? Um, so I think in those types of situations, it can be a little bit more useful. And again, it's not everything, but it's just giving you an idea of what is the response of that particular individual. Because as you said before, what I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing as you mentioned, like the response is just so crazy. Like, I don't think we have any idea of how different people's responses are to almost the same thing all the time, right? I mean, just, you know, from just training people, like some people look at a weight and get bigger. They're, you know, definitely the exception. Other people, like, man, you have to push volume and calories like really hard for them to gain, you know, a couple pounds of lean body mass. 
and experience and all that other things, you know, makes a big difference, of course. Um, but you know, there's some people where you can beat them with a stick, like we said, and you know, they just come back the next day and they're okay. Um, so I'm not sure if that even answered your question. <laughs> yeah. The, it seems HRV, what gets me with it is, is it seems to be for a lot of people just sciencey enough to, to like, to justify whatever they're doing or maybe not justify it. And so to me, my, my, oh, totally. my biggest problem with it is they don't have someone objectively looking at it because they're, right. they're always going to be subjective. And, and if you have complicated data, you can generally, you can spin it to tell whatever story you want to tell. Um, so I'm, I'm 100% for people using this technology with an objective observer in the, in the background. I'm an addict. If I have HRV, what did I use HRV for? I used HRV to just crush myself more. Like I yeah. was like, and, and, and it didn't necessarily work. So now, so HRV essentially gave me a green light to just go bonkers. Um, and, and so that's where I think having someone on the back end can be so critical. And then also someone on the back end who doesn't necessarily take the, that measurement as, you know, the, the only thing that's going on uh, yeah. that is looking at other quantifiers, what's moving, uh, and maybe all this shit's moving and it doesn't matter. Like we, yeah. yeah. And the other mistake I've made too in the past is I would look in, uh, so the other day this happened again. So I did some recovery work, did some meditation, did a float tank, took a day off on Sunday, kind of relaxed. And I was great. Nature V went up literally 17 points. Now I know that I've been training for six days in a row. I kind of artificially pushed it down, but man, that day I felt like shit. You know, because I had become almost a little bit too parasympathetic. Where in the past, I would try to train on that day and it would just be a disaster, right? So there isn't as much literature on what happens if you're too parasympathetic, right? So that rest and digest branch of the autonomic nervous system is too high. If you talk to anyone who's done a lot of HRV, you'll see that happen also. And so what I've been playing around with, and I stole this from Cal Dietz and Joel Jameson, is if they're really parasympathetic and I'm really trying to compress training, I'm like, okay, can I have them do something that's very sympathetic without volume? So what I did, and I stole this from Cal Dietz, is, okay, go in the gym, set up a trap bar and put the pins on top and set it up so you're about two to three inches from lockout, no weight on it. And then I want you to do an ISO pull against those pins for three to five seconds as hard as you can and then rest. Do that maybe three to four to five sets, do a few plyometrics and then leave the gym, right? So what am I doing? I'm trying to up the sympathetic stress a little bit, but I don't want any of the side effects of, you know, tissue and everything else. Again, it's completely anecdotal, there's no research on it, but it seems like that will push someone back down closer to their, their baseline again too. So I think the future may be, once again, more research on HRV, if you become a little bit too parasympathetic, should you do these sets of things? If you become very sympathetic, should you do these sets of things? Right? And it makes sense that if you're very sympathetic, things that increase parasympathetic tone, meditation, breathing, walking around, just hang outside, stare at trees, you know, stuff like that, probably going to be beneficial. Right? If you're very parasympathetic, uh, things that are a high sympathetic demand, but short, right? We don't want to burn you out may you know kind of bring you back down to baseline maybe cold water immersions one of them things of that nature yes kind of individualizing your recovery strategies to the athlete in the time frame 
Yeah. And that, you know, kind of helps make a little bit of sense of all the different recovery modules that like the research is all across the board on that. Right. Cause you just take a whole bunch of people. We do X, Y recovery metric. And then we see what happens. It's like, yeah, I think where we're kind of getting with genetics too is, you know, a lot of the new caffeine studies look to see, well, are you a fast or slow metabolizer of caffeine? And then we split you into groups and then we test you and see what happens. So I think in the future we'll probably get to that and say, okay, here's how you respond. So we're going to take this group here and we're going to do this intervention. You people over here, you don't respond as well. So we're going to put you over in this group here. Right. So kind of what a good coach already does anyway, like what's kind of the best program for you monitor that and then, you know, change it as it is. Cause if the same program worked for everyone, we would know what the program is, right? There'd be one program for hypertrophy and it'd be like, just do this. But you know, no one responds exactly the same as the next person either. It seems to me that if, so if you get these, you, the hyper responders, are easy to identify. They respond to next yeah. to nothing, right? So it, and this is in endurance data, and I can pull the study, but it, it generally seems like if you are a low responder, you have, and that low responder is not from like lifestyle stress. If right. you're a low responder, you have one option, and that one option is more volume. Like yeah. that, that one option <laughs> is more. And you can't get mad at the guy who responded to two sets and you need 22. Like that's yeah. just, that's just kind of what happens. Like you're, and it seems like if you continually take the low responders and you give them more and more and more and more volume, eventually everybody becomes a responder to some, at some point. Yes. Uh, it's just finding where is that. Um, and then you probably have the, the depreciating returns, right? Maybe that person that is for them, however many sets that is per week, uh, that could be dangerous. Like they're going too high. So then you got to back them off more, but that's how much they need to adapt. Um, so these are, these are all fucking cool problems. Um, yeah. And, and then I wonder with those people, are they just neuromuscularly not as efficient, right? Even though they're more experienced, but they just can't recruit as much muscle tissue for God knows whatever reason. So maybe they have to make up for it by doing more volume because they're kind of getting a little bit of, diminished returns compared to somebody else they can't hit those high threshold motor units as fast yeah that that would be my guess and i mean maybe you look at emg but emg is dirty and not as clean as what people think and it's yeah i don't know i just yeah stuff like that i've just wondered wondered about too yeah the 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 speed component to me is having the gym aware has been pretty interesting and just like being able to see that certain exercises, if you are thinking of like, if I, I don't think that I'm not sure that Chris Beardsley's hypothesis is completely correct, but it's, it's interesting. Um, in that the effect it's kind of the effective reps hypothesis in that if you, you have mm-hmm. the, the last six reps or a six RM, all of those reps are going to count for hypertrophy and everything else doesn't count. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. exactly. And so, but I think the one thing that we can agree on is that effort is a prerequisite. Like oh yeah. For so, and to me, the the measurement of velocity allows you to quantify effort. Yes. And, and so that okay. that is that is the coolest thing to me is like I'm able to quantify effort. They and the placebo of just hearing a number like yelled out to you, and they're like, damn. I got to go get that. <laughs> it's so wild. Yeah. Like you, you can't beat it. 
and and so that to me if we have effort stabilized and that's for low responders that's what i've found and i, and I don't think it's their fault i just think that they have no concept of effort like yeah. no concept of what getting to a 0.3 meters per second feels like and they just they whatever like if you that's why the the studies on volitional fatigue like i'm like i don't know i don't know about this like most of these isokinetics too so it's like yeah mary stopped at three <laughs> like, <laughs> you've seen that in the lab right i mean i did a whole study and it's like okay you do or you're going on the treadmill for a max test right this is all out max i got the metabolic card i know where you're at i got your heart rate i got your blood pressure i got everything on you but some people realize that if they just say oh my rp is a 10 that you have to turn off the treadmill like, there's some data I couldn't use because I could verify and look at the RER that you're, you're 0.95. You haven't even crossed one. Your heart rate's 150. You're a 21 year old female, you know? So I have to throw it out and say, I know this isn't a max effort, even though, you know, ethically you have to, you know, stop and all that kind of stuff. But usually those people are the people who just haven't trained. Like they don't know what their max is. They think they got to it. They're just, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Hutchinson stuff that that book the I love that book endure so it because it, th that's the performance like quantifying performance and predicting performance like the, the research we have is terrible like nothing predicts performance so you think yeah you think HRV no. is going to predict these people's performances in 10 days like no like nope. Navy SEALs can do the same thing on like 72 hours of sleep deprivation like they, their performance is insane it's nuts um so, so we have these yeah. two studies. To summarize, we have we have two studies of HRV, um, and this is coming from someone who who genuinely is on the fence about HRV. Um, if anything, I would be on the side of like not liking HRV for placebo yeah. no, nocebo effects. And I think those studies were built to fail. Like I think that they were that we can't take those studies and, and have this global opinion that this is a not a useful technology because it has proved useful in a lot of populations. It's proved oh, useful yeah. in endurance time and again. Um, and we don't have a lot of valuable metrics, metrics for overreaching and overtraining. I just think that you, if you want to use this stuff, you probably want to work with a guy like Mike. You probably want to work with a, like, with a guy like Aaron Davis, who's managed a ton of this stuff on the back end, who's managed, who's looked at this stuff and isn't going to overreact and is going to look at long-term trends. And also look how people, I think the coolest thing that, that you said kind of give us a window into your approach was that you use tried and true to S&C principles. You're going to linearly increase volume and then you're going to, oh, yeah. you're going to, you're using, you're using things that we know work and then you're, then you're kind of at first. You're not, and that I think it was I don't know, I'm not sure who it was I think it was Charlie Weingart or somebody they just they just looked at HRV for like two years before they even changed anything they're like I just want to see what's going on oh I my just want I just want to watch the data um, and and so that that to me is and that's all I did with with Jim is we just watched the data for the first two months I'm like let's just train to failure for two months and just watch the data. And then, and then we can yeah. start, then we can start maybe doing something with the data. Um, so Mike, this has been, this has been, this has been really nice. I feel like I'm in your home. Yeah. No, uh, thank you so much for all the good questions. And I always love the, 
I like a contrary opinion from someone like yourself who has put a lot of thought into it and has actually done the measurements and that type of thing. So you, know, you can have like an intelligent discussion. It doesn't mean people have to agree or anything like that, but it just seems like the latest trend, like everything on the internet is, oh, it's the greatest thing ever. Or no, it's all horrible. And I made a lot of enemies probably four years ago when people started saying, oh, I did all this HRV data and I'd email them and go, cool, what'd you find for HRV? Like, please tell me. They're like, nope, not no one, but very few people would write back. And I'm like, I don't care what you found. Like, I want to know, is it useful? You said you had data. You have more data than I have possibly. What did you find? And what I realized was eh, some people who said they had data didn't have any data. <laughs> and the people yeah. who had data were more than willing to share it. And they're like, hey, you know, here's what we've seen and here's what we found. I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's awesome. But it, it's like anything else, right? If it's trendy, people want to sort of hop on the bandwagon and say, I'm doing this new trendy thing. And if it kind of falls off the bandwagon, you know, similar people are like, oh, I knew it was crap all the time. That's just worthless. It's like, eh, it's probably somewhere in between, you know? And it's uh, like you said, well, I don't even know if we'll ever have one particular marker that'll tell us fatigue. I just, I, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. So whether whatever measurement people wheel out, the exception is maybe some marker performance, maybe, you know, might kind of get there. But outside of that, like non-performance metrics, I just don't think we're going to get there, you know? So then you're left with, okay, what has research support? What can I get like pretty inexpensively? What doesn't take me a lot of time? What's also probably non-invasive. Athletes aren't going to do invasive tests all the time. And, you know, HRV fulfills those requirements. So I think it, it can be useful. But again, at the end of the day, it's just telling you status of your autonomic nervous system at the time and place you did the measure. Helpful. I think it's extremely useful, but it's not going to predict performance and tell you, you know, everything under the sun and, oh, bro, do five sets instead of six today. You'll, you know, put an inch on your biceps. Nah, it's not going to tell you that. <laughs> what do you think about the, the combination? There's always going to be something new, right? We have this, we have the aura ring, yeah. which is like this constant spew of data. Uh, we have all these whoop bands. Uh, but one of the coolest things that I found, and I sent you this study, is this, I yeah. don't even know, I, I thought it was like, I'm going to be completely honest. When I saw this word, I was like, oh, this is a sleep study because it looks like polysomography. Oh, PSG. <laughs> yeah, but it's photofleecemography, which is like, it's essentially a peripheral HRV measurement, right? Yeah, so there's a way to do, so some of the camera apps will take um, basically looking at pulse pressure, right? And in my experience, like a lot of the, the wrist warns, like so I have a Garmin, puts a light in there and it measures blood flow as it comes by. And like Apple Watch, all of them will give you HRV now. What I've seen is in general, they're not super accurate unless you have a dedicated sensor to pick it up. Now, I think we probably will get to the point where, you know, just taking the camera off the back of your phone, you may be able to get that. Uh, the dedicated sensors for it in HRV now are actually pretty accurate, so it can be useful. Um, so it's just another way of trying to get the data. Um, off of the wrist is a really horrible place to get it. Because to do HRV accurately, you need to detect the peak of the R wave within about three to seven milliseconds. So very, very accurately, right? Because what are you measuring? You're measuring fine scale differences between one R wave and the next. So the detections of that peak, which gets rounded because it's a pulse pressure difference, uh, you have to be very accurate on that. So one of the reasons Aura did a ring is a lot of their engineers are from Polar. 
and the vessel is very near to the skin. So they can actually map that waveform very accurately because the distance is very small and it's easy to get it. On the wrist is much harder. There's a bunch more tissue, there's a bunch of other stuff you kind of have to work around. So I think we'll get to that point. I think it'll, it'll show up in a bunch of other stuff. Uh, but again, you're left with the same problem we just discussed. Okay, what do you do with it, right? And now you see things like the whoop band where they're trying to combine it with sleep and Aura gives you a readiness score and things of that nature. And I don't know. I don't put a lot of faith in almost any readiness score. I just look at the raw data and just kind of, you know, go from there. And, you know, I have an Aura ring. I like it. I think it's useful. But even then, HRV data on an Aura ring is averaged over the course of a night. So if you look at their algorithm, which is published in the journal Sleep, uh, HRV from the gathering of the data is super accurate. The downside is now we're looking at data differently. So if your sleep varies, your HRV is going to vary a little bit because the time course of where you collected that data is going to be a little bit different. And if you compare that to what do we ever have historically where we gather that much HRV data, it's very, very few studies. So again, is the HRV score on there accurate? I think that it is. Does it really represent what we want it to? Maybe or maybe not, because most of the other data, especially in sports performance, is a one-time measurement first thing in the morning. That first thing in the morning, proximal is closer to that state of where you're at than averaging something out over the course of the night. So I, and I do both. I mean, I have an athlete and I have an aura, and I've you know looked at them for about a year. I think the aura gives me an idea just generally kind of where I'm at. Um, but related to short-term fatigue and that type of thing, I don't find that it's super useful. Um, I do find the one-time measurement of uh, iFleet is a little bit more representation of that. Um, but, you know, that may be sorted out more in the future as we, we get more data. But, yeah. Yeah, it seems like anything with the, with the anything that has to be sold, I, I'm very careful with anything that, like anything that has to make money because it'll be sure. valid. It'll, it'll be validated second to being sold. Like, of course. That, like you, like it has, it has to make money first and then you can validate it. Like, which you go to, you go to, and obviously like, not, I don't, I'm not paid by anybody on these, on for these. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think you are either. Um, so we're just the, the whoop band, like you go to their scientific, one of my buddies is like, is this legit? And I went, I went to the whoop band and I'm like, went to their validation and they got like, they got one validation in like tennis players for like six days or something. Like it was, it was, it was, and it was just like a couple of metrics. So it wasn't like their, it wasn't their global metric. It was just like, this thing can measure resting heart rate. Like, thanks. Like yeah, pull, thank pulse you. ox, pulse ox. <laughs> like, and, and even like accelerometer, like, like the, the pedometer based stuff. It's like trying to find the most accurate pedometer is it, you know, they're all, how do you do that? Like, they're all, it's like, what does Carl, what does Carl think? Like, I don't give a Carl thinks. Like, <laughs> I want to know what happened. So, um, so I appreciate you. I appreciate you talking about this, uh, this complicated topic. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's fun. Always, always. A pleasure. Yeah, good times. Uh, Mike is going to be down here in March at Flow yeah. Tree Center again. Uh, he's going to be talking science with us. He's going to be, it's always, dude, it's, it's a blast having you. Uh, oh, it's can, always fun. Where can people find more about you? Uh, best place is probably just the website. It's just MikeTNelson.com. If you go to the top there, you'll be able to get on the newsletter, which is free. And that's where like most of my content, probably 90% of my content uh, goes out now over the newsletter. 
And then if you're interested in the certification, it would be flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And then I also do have a HRV education course. I don't think I have that up on the website yet, but they can just email me and I can hook them up with, with that too. So, yeah. Sounds good, man. Hey, thank you for, for all that you do, and I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on me. Thank you again. Pura vida. Yeah. Nos vemos pronto.